If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 8. We are looking at the second half of this chapter. We did the first half last week. Uh, So we're looking at verses 18 to 34. Uh, And here's something interesting, and, and we'll see this as we go through this passage together. Normally, these three little scenes are treated separately. We talk about each one of these as if it's a different thing, um, but really the way Matthew has written his gospel, all three of these things are sharing for us uh, a common idea, a common theme, and we'll see what that is here in just a few moments. But just recognize these are all meant to be read together. So this is God's word for us this morning. This is Matthew 8, verses 18 to 34. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is God's word for us today. I believe this whole section is about discipleship, about what it means to follow Jesus. And it unfolds for us in three scenes, and each one of these scenes teaches us something about what it means to be a follower of Christ. In the first scene, verses 18 to 22, we meet two would-be disciples. And remember what has happened. Jesus has been healing all night. That's where we ended last week. Uh, The people of the whole region of Capernaum are bringing their sick and bringing their demon-possessed and demon-oppressed people, and Jesus has been healing all night, so a great crowd has gathered. 
And verse 18 tells us that Jesus has the disciples ready the boat. He's going to go across the Sea of Galilee, crossing over to the other side, just in some ways to get away from the crowds. And two people, two would-be disciples, uh, see the disciples prepping to leave and approach Jesus. The first one we meet in verse 19, he is a scribe. Now, the scribes in ancient Israel were the official interpreters of God's law. They were scholars and Bible teachers. This is an important guy, a notable person. And he says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But what he's really saying is more like this. Jesus, I'm going to do you the honor of having me follow you. It's a a request, the way he says it is a request filled with pride and with self-importance. And Jesus answers, or at least this is the sense of what Jesus says as he answers in verse 20. He said, you don't know what you're saying. You don't know what you're saying. This is not a comfortable or a secure life that's going to boost your status. You say you'll follow me anywhere, but I have nowhere to go. You know, we're not going to give TED Talks here. This isn't the lecture circuit there's going to be, where there's going to be green rooms and hospitality suites and honoraria. This is a life of wandering. This is a life of hardship. The guy didn't even know what he was asking to do. And again, it's helpful and instructive to realize Jesus is not desperate for impressive disciples. Jesus is not anxiously seeking for people that could be assets to the kingdom. In fact, time and time again, Jesus shows us that oftentimes our biggest strengths are really our biggest liabilities in the kingdom. And by that, I simply mean it is in the places that we are most strong, the places that we are most gifted, that we are most ready and most able to forget that the whole point of life in the kingdom is we are defined by Jesus. The places we are best, the places we are strongest, it is easiest to forget our need of Christ. And so this is a guy who has approached Jesus that would be on the fast track to upper management in most organizations, and Jesus just kind of fouls him off. He's like, nope. So another guy approaches. And you kind of get the sense, like in verse 21, that there's like a line, like at the end of a a lecture, uh, a bunch of people are waiting in line to ask questions. So the next guy stands up and he's thinking, hey, I'm not going to do what that guy did. And he says, hey, uh, this guy we find out is already one of Jesus's disciples, but he says, I need to take care of some family business before I follow you. I need to go bury my father. Now, before I get to what Jesus responds to him, it's probably helpful to think about what is actually happening in this guy's life. It is unlikely that this man's father has just died. Uh, In the ancient world, uh, in ancient Israel in particular, uh, bodies were usually buried within 24 hours of death. Uh, And if this man was a son and his father had just died, uh, he would not have been with Jesus. He would have been mourning with his family, most likely. Uh, In the ancient world, the way they buried people is they had tombs, and the tombs had benches in them. And they would wrap the bodies in a shroud, and they would lay them on these benches. And they would leave them there uh, for years. And after several years, you would come in, and you would collect the bones, and you would put them in a box, 
and you would put the box in a storage area underneath these benches in the tombs. Your tomb was your family tomb. Everyone in your family had been buried there for generations. When this guy says to Jesus, I need to go bury my father, what he is probably saying is I need to go collect the bones of my father, put them in a box, and store them under the bench. So when Jesus says to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead, what Jesus is probably getting at, what Jesus is probably saying is the bones will take care of themselves. Follow me. Uh, It's harsh sounding. But Jesus is telling him, Jesus is reminding him of the urgency of following Christ. The urgency of following Jesus is the most important thing. And this guy, we found out, is already a disciple. He's already following Jesus. Jesus is calling him back to the centrality and the importance of following him. I saw this illustrated in a really beautiful way a few years ago uh, in an interview I saw with Eugene Peterson. Uh, Eugene Peterson is a pastor and an author. He's most famous for a kind of paraphrase of the Bible that he did called The Message. And in this interview, uh, the guy asked him a question. He goes, I heard this story about you, Eugene, that, that Bono called you. Uh, Bono is the lead singer of U2, like most famous rock band in history, one of them. Uh, Bono called you and wanted to spend time with you, uh, and you turned him down. And Eugene Peterson said, well, you know, I was working on the message, and I was in uh, the book of Isaiah. And the interviewer goes, but Eugene, it was Bono. And Eugene said, it was Isaiah. (laughs) It was this beautiful picture of just not being at all influenced by the way the world thinks, but the centrality of doing the work that Christ had called him to. Uh, He was following Christ faithfully. It's an amazing story. So in this story, in this passage, in this initial section here, Jesus discourages a super zealous candidate to follow him, and he summons a timid candidate to follow him, a guy who's distracted by other things. He says, come and follow me. And in some ways, I think what Jesus is saying to us as we read that passage and as we read these subsequent stories is simply this. So, you want to be a disciple. Let's see what that looks like. And so the story unfolds. The second scene opens in verse 23. The disciples climb into the boat, they follow Jesus into the boat, and they begin to cross the Sea of Galilee, which isn't really a sea, it's actually a lake. Uh, But it's a big lake, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee, and verse 24 tells us that a big storm comes up, it blows up, and the boat is being swamped. Water is crashing in over the sides, the boat is about to sink, and where is Jesus? He's asleep. He's taking a nap uh, in the boat. Now remember, Jesus has been up all night. He has been teaching and healing people for hours. He is very clearly tired. Verse 25 says the, the panicked disciples wake Jesus up and they're like, we're dying here. Like, we're about to die, Jesus. And Jesus, I imagine, just sort of casually wakes up. He wakes up with enough time to say, why are you guys afraid? You almost get the sense that he's like stretching and yawning. Storm is raging around him. He stands up. Why are you afraid, you little faiths? 
which is actually the word. It's, it's, it's one word. Our, our uh, English Bibles translate it, you of little faith. But in Greek, it's one word, little faiths. Why are you afraid, little faiths? So they, they're panicking. Jesus stands up, rebukes the wind and the waves, like, stop it. And a great calm comes. It's amazing. This is, this is an amazing story. Because you see the, the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus just jammed next to one another. The, the humanity of Jesus, he is asleep in a boat because he's exhausted. And he wakes up, says a word, and creation itself recognizes the voice of its creator. And it can't help but stop the storm. It's amazing. This is a profound passage. But it also illustrates something for us, an important point about the nature and the character of discipleship. Look carefully at verse 23. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. The disciples followed Jesus, and that led them directly into a storm. Following Jesus led them into a storm. And I'm simply highlighting this because I think so often we think that if we could just follow Jesus correctly, our lives will go well. That if I'm doing the right things, then I should kind of get the right stuff. As if Jesus is sort of a vending machine that if I give the right inputs to, he will give me the desired outputs. If I read my Bible, if I pray, if I come to worship, if I give, if I volunteer, then things will generally go okay. But notice, the disciples follow Jesus and end up in a storm. Friends, following Jesus does not lead us into comfort or pleasure or control. It frequently leads us into hardship, into danger into chaos. In fact, one commentator calls these next two sections the chaos miracles, Jesus doing miracles in the midst of chaos. And so what is it that Jesus calls us to in the midst of this kind of chaos, in the midst of this kind of storm? What he calls us to is faith. Jesus calls his disciples to faith. Uh, One definition I saw of faith this week reflecting on this passage is is this. Faith is often depicted in the Gospels as a courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion. A courageous confidence that Jesus is equal to the occasion, that he is equal to the task at hand. In verse 26, Jesus calls his disciples little faiths. And we rightly hear that as a rebuke. He is rebuking them for their small amount of faith. He is calling his disciples, he is calling us to a faith as expansive as his lordship is. Jesus is saying, I am Lord over every molecule in the universe. Your faith needs to be that big. But friends, it's important for us to realize something. Jesus is calling us to a life that is hard. Jesus is calling us to a life that is difficult. He is not calling us to something that is easy or safe or simple. It's why we need big faith. Jesus is saying that the way of discipleship is a narrow path. 
On that path, we have to die to ourselves. We have to take up our crosses and follow him. We, we see that we are being brought onto God's mission to fill the earth with his glory. We have a difficult task before us, and Jesus is calling us to the kind of faith that will sustain us on that mission. But sometimes we worry that we haven't believed enough. That's kind of one of the ironies of believing that we are saved by faith alone, is that just gives us one more thing to worry about. Okay, I'm not saved by what I'm doing, but I am saved maybe by how well I'm believing. But again and again and again, the gospel reminds us that the object of our faith is more important than the quality of our faith or the quantity of our faith. The great pastor and preacher Charles Spurgeon one time encouraged his congregation, stop making a Christ of your faith. Stop trusting in your faith. So in chaos, in the storm, in the difficult things the Lord is calling us to do, we must focus on our Savior, not on our faith, because our Savior is equal to the task. We have faith in Christ, not faith in our faith. So, you want to be a disciple? Expect danger. And there's one more scene. We go to scene three, which starts in verse 28. The disciples arrive on the other side of uh, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and they land in Gentile country. Uh, so this is uh, Gentile territory. It's not uh, Jews who live there. Uh, and two demon-possessed men greet them almost immediately. These, these men live among the tombs. And when they see Jesus, they recognize him. The demons recognize who has landed on their shore, and they run towards him, screaming at him. Uh, the translation says crying out, but the Greek says screaming. The demons are screaming at Jesus, why are you here, son of God? And they plead with him not to torment them before the final judgment, not to torment them at that very moment. And again, we know that this is Gentile country in part because verse 30 tells us there is a herd of pigs nearby. Jews did not keep pigs as livestock. And the demons begin begging Jesus. They, they are trembling before the Son of God. They begin begging him, just send us into those pigs. And Jesus says simply, go. That's amazing. He says, go, and they rush into the pigs, and the pigs rush down the hill right into the water where they drown. The same voice that commanded the wind and the waves says to the demons, go, and they can't help but go. Verse 33 tells us that the herdsmen see all this, and they run away. They're clearly a little terrified by what has happened. Uh, and they go to the city and they tell everything that has happened. They tell about the demon-possessed men being healed, but they also tell about the pigs. And so the city, it says, kind of gathers together and they come out and they beg Jesus to leave. You see, surely the destruction of a herd of pigs affected the city economically, but it's really sad if you think about it. Because not only do they see the loss of the herd of pigs, but they also should see the restoration of these two men. 
The townspeople clearly see only the economic factor here, not the amazing reality of what God has just done. And there's two things I think we see in this brief story. One is we have to simply reflect briefly on the nature of demons uh, and of the demonic realm. They are powerful, but demons only have the power to corrupt and destroy what God has made. You see the corruption in the fact that these men are dehumanized. Um, They are not men who are fully bearing God's image rightly in the world. They have been dehumanized by these demons. They are living in tombs as if they were already dead. And demons only have the power beyond that to destroy. Uh, It's not like these pigs do great after the demons go into them. The demons rush them down a hillside into the ocean where they drown. Friends, the forces of darkness... The demonic powers, the spiritual forces that are against God and his kingdom have only the power to vandalize God's good creation. They don't have power to create. They're not creative. They can only break and corrupt what God has made. And they can only do what God permits. God is sovereign even over those Forces. We see that here. They, Jesus says, go, and they go. Martin Luther put it this way. He said, the devil is God's devil, which means the devil can only do what God permits. Jesus, when he is confronted with these forces, is equal to the task. A second thing I think we see here. We don't really see the disciples in this story But we know they're there because we know they're in the boat. Uh, They're silent here. And again, it's just helpful to note, following Jesus has led them again into chaos. They just thought they were about to die on the water. They land and they are immediately confronted with the forces of darkness. And again, the point here for us as disciples is to recognize as we follow Jesus, we will encounter sin and evil in all of its forms. Friends, following Jesus is not pleasant, is not tidy, it's not comfortable. It is a life that will lead us again and again to confront the power of sin and evil and darkness in the world. And that means the life of a disciple is not one of sort of charmed naivete. It's it's one where we have to learn to not be shocked by sin because sin is everywhere. The whole point of following Jesus is we are learning to push back on the forces of sin in the world. We need to be people that recognize well the full destructiveness of sin and evil. I've been a pastor now for just over 12 years, which isn't an extensive, extensive amount of time, but I've been a pastor long enough to have seen some things. And one of the things I've seen over and over again is that when the gospel is working, Sin and evil come to light. When the gospel is working, it's like a plow that's turning over soil and occasionally it turns over rocks and unearths the darkness, unearths the sin. And what I want to say to y'all is that's expected in the church. Being in a church where sin comes to light and we have to deal with complicated issues of brokenness and evil doesn't mean it's a bad church. It means the gospel is working. 
Friends, if we want to be disciples, we have to learn to expect the darkness. See, friends, I think the big point here of all of this passage is that being a disciple puts us squarely at odds with the way of the world. Because the way of the world teaches us that the good life is to maximize our comfort and to maximize our pleasure. But we disciples are followers of Jesus. We are followers of the one who marches without flinching into human sin, into human brokenness, into physical danger, into the face of darkness. Jesus stares down darkness. He looks the abyss of human sin and misery full in the face without flinching. And as we follow Jesus, we will experience that too. And if we're honest, I think we have to say that terrifies us a little bit. It should terrify us a little bit. Because we see ourselves in the disciples. We we are sort of invited to put ourselves in their shoes. Because we too are little faiths. We don't believe the way that we should. We look at the danger, we look at the darkness, and we have this very strong impulse to turn and to run and to cry out, Lord, we're dying here. But there's good news for us, just like there was good news for the disciples. Jesus doesn't wait until our faith is strong enough to save us. Jesus doesn't wait until our faith is awesome and powerful and full in everything we do to act and to rescue. Jesus is with us in the danger. He is with us in the darkness. He is powerful. And when he speaks, the winds and the waves and the demons and the danger and the darkness obey. Frederick Bruner, my favorite commentator on Matthew, puts it this way. He says, important as faith certainly is in the gospel, the always deeper fact is that no matter how weak our faith or how unworthy our approach, Jesus helps us. His grace is more important than our faith. His grace is more important than our faith. And so I simply say to you in closing, courage, dear ones, courage. Jesus calls us to something difficult, but he calls us to something that matters. We follow him into danger. We follow him into darkness. You want to be a disciple? Expect danger. Expect darkness. But also expect that Jesus is with you. That Jesus helps you, that Jesus rescues you, and that Jesus loves and delights in you. And so even or perhaps especially in our little faith, he is equal to the task. Would you pray with me? Father, we so want lives of comfort and ease and control. We don't like thinking that following you might lead us into danger and darkness. But here we are reminded that it will do just that. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith. We believe, help our unbelief. Father, in our little faith, Remind us that you are faithful, that you are good, 
that you govern all things because you are sovereign over the world. You are sovereign over every molecule in creation. And we thank you that even when we experience danger and darkness, Lord, you are with us. And you love us. And you help us. And you rescue us. And you delight in us. And we pray even now as we come to the table that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in the reality of Christ's work on our behalf. Give us faith and obedience, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.